are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, we're looking tonight at chapter 1. That's chapter 1 and verses 17 through 20, and you'll find this on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. John is having his vision. He has seen the risen Christ, and we're reading Revelation 1, 17 through 20. Hear the word of God. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, Christ, as we have found in previous expositions, appeared in the midst of those lampstands with features that symbolized his attributes. For example, the sacerdotal clothing, you remember, distinguished him as the glorified heavenly high priest. He stood among the churches and he was encircled by the churches and he was reigning in the churches and caring for the churches. And therein lies the strength and the stability of the church, that Christ is with her. And the majestic brilliance of his appearance absolutely overwhelmed the apostle. It was too much for him to take in all at once. It was literally overpowering. We remember Peter saying in his second epistle, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And certainly from this vision, John could agree with that statement. He was an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ in all of its august splendor. And from what we see in these four verses, we'll consider the fear of the Lord and the mercy of Christ, and the commission of John. The fear of the Lord, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now throughout Scripture, falling at someone's feet, as you know, is an expression of reverence. For example, in Mark 5, it says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. But you see, John's prostration here was not merely an oriental display of respect. This was the immediate reaction of a man who was overwhelmed by divine majesty. He tells us that he fell at Christ's feet as though dead, unable to stand. We're told that when Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, saw the pre-incarnate Christ, he reacted in the very same way. In chapter 10 of Daniel's prophecy, it says, As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. 
And then later he says, no strength remained. With John, it was as if he had no life. His eyes were dazzled by Christ's brightness and his ears were stunned by the magnitude of his voice and his soul was astonished at his glorified majesty. And such posture is usually displayed by those who are confronted with the glory of God. You remember when the Lord appeared to Abram and spoke to him, it says Abram fell on his face. The commander of the Lord's army appeared and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. When Ezekiel saw the likeness of the Lord's glory, it says, I fell on my face. So in each case, the man was overcome by the sheer weight of the divine glory. And so majestic was the vision that in each instance, the man fell prostrate, face to the ground. And at the same time, each was overpowered by a deep sense of his own unworthiness to be in the presence of such majesty. And it was no different in the experience of the Apostle John, who, we're told, fell at his feet as though dead. Warren Wearsby is right when he says, when Christ was on earth, John lay on his bosom, but now he falls at his feet. It was a prostration of humility and terror and awe and veneration and worship all at the same time. And I think one lesson to be learned from John's response is that of reverence. You know something in this day and age, sadly, reverence is not considered a virtue, as far as I can tell. We're taught to aspire to bravery, to patriotism, truthfulness, perhaps even to compassion, but many modern people view reverence as a sign of formality or dryness or unfeelingness. And yet who among us would ever accuse John of being formal, dry, or unfeeling in the presence of the glorified Christ? No, reverence is a sincere recognition and acknowledgement of greatness. And the greater the greatness, the deeper and more profound the reverence. When greatness is infinite and eternal and unchanging, one falls to his face as though he's dead. And the only legitimate response for the human being is to lie prostrate before the risen Christ. The exalted Lord Jesus is infinite in wisdom, power, holiness, and love. And in light of that, we ought to seek to avoid two extremes in worship. Two extremes, I think. On the one hand, we have to avoid being overly casual or flippant. After all, we're coming into the presence of a majestic king. Think of John. On the other hand, we have to avoid being overly stuffy or rigid or lifeless. One extreme is too familiar, while the other extreme is just Formal, and of course, both of them are wrong. Jesus is not just our warm-hearted friend. He is a majestic king. And at the same time, he's not just an authoritative tyrant. He's a loving redeemer. Our generation, more often than not, however, errs, I think, on the side of flippancy. Henry Lydon puts it this way. The man without reverence is the man who can see in God's universe no greatness which transcends himself. The really pitiable thing is to revere nothing. 
There needs to be a balance then of reverence and warm devotion. And I would make the case this evening that reverence and awe are tests of true faith. That is to say, how do you and I respond when we come into the presence of Christ? That's where we are now. Our posture, our demeanor, our attitude speaks volumes about our faith. Do we see him as he is revealed to John? What is our response, if so? The apostle says in Hebrews 12 that acceptable worship is with reverence and awe. So does the majesty of Christ influence our worship, our prayers, our songs, our hearing, our preaching? If we were before the head of state, would we lounge as if in an easy chair? In the presence of the exalted Christ, are you and I more concerned about what others think than about what God thinks? These are important questions. Again, if I can quote Henry Lydon, he says, We are so framed that we can only love for long that which we heartily respect. When God asks the best love of our hearts, he preserves it from corruption by requiring also the safeguard of reverence. The state of our hearts is important and also equally is the way we conduct our worship. In fact, the object and the mode and the manner of worship will shape our character. It shapes us. So you wake up on a Sunday morning like me and we are irritable, thankless, and sour. That happens more often than not. And worship reorients the soul. You walk in here and something happens. The question is, how is it going to reorient the soul? Will it lead to reverence and gratitude or to flippancy and presumption? The fear of the Lord. Secondly, the mercy of Christ. It says, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And of course, here the majestic, glorious Son of Man tenderly lays his right hand and restores John's strength. And this is the same hand that gripped those seven stars and now it's laid upon his shoulder. And we have to realize that the king, King Jesus, could have crushed John in an instant squashed him like a bug. But Christ is as tender in his exalted state as he was in the days of his humiliation. That has not changed. And with this kind and friendly gesture came the encouraging words, fear not. He who is clothed with authority rules the universe is sympathetic. In the midst of a stunningly majestic revelation of lordship, Jesus exhibits tender compassion. So John needn't fear. This vision was not meant to terrify him, but to encourage him. And the parallel between this and what the prophet Daniel experienced is really striking. Because again, in Daniel 10, he too had fallen on his face to the ground, you remember. And then he goes on. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. And when he had spoken, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. 
Like Daniel, the apostle John was reassured and revived by those words, fear not. So let's realize that Jesus does not mean here simply, don't fear my appearance. It's much broader than that. What he's saying is don't fear anything or anyone because I am the risen Lord. Don't fear since I've conquered sin and death and hell and all the powers of darkness. Don't fear because I am enthroned at God's right hand and I reign over all of it. You don't need to fear. And all of this is implicit when he identifies himself as the first and the last. It's the very same phrase used in Isaiah's prophecy to describe Yahweh himself. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Obviously, I think this is another case of merism, as we talked about last time. You remember what a merism is. It's two contrasting words that refers to an entirety. First, last, everything. It's a merism. Jesus is in control of history. Nothing happens apart from his sovereign will. He is first before all things and from everlasting. He is last beyond all things and with no end. And as the psalmist puts it, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He guides all the human events. He governs all the national affairs and he orders every step of our lives. Do we believe it? He controls all the twists and turns of history, both public history and your private history. All those twists and turns. He transcends time itself. And our Lord's purpose cannot fail, and all things are summed up in Christ. And that description, the first and the last, obviously, is another way to affirm his deity. He is God. And he's claiming equality with God. There's no question about that. He was there at the start, and he'll be there at the end. In fact, the Son of God has no beginning and no end. He is the maker of all things visible and invisible, your Savior and mine. He existed from eternity past, and he'll always persist to eternity future. Before time, he resided in the bosom of the Father, and with the Father, he created the world. And then in the fullness of time, He assumed our nature and bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's absolutely staggering. He is the object of our worship and the fountain of our life and the center of heaven's glory. And all things visible will be rolled up as a garment, but Jesus will always be the same. And what this is telling us is that he has absolute sovereignty over the first and the last and everything in between. And with that in mind, is there anything on earth that you and I need to fear? Psalm 27, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. But notice, Christ is also the living one who once died and is now alive forevermore. He had been put to death, and to this he refers when he says, I died. He was crucified. It was a violent, shameful, cursed death by wicked men who nailed him to the tree. 
His human soul, mind you, was separated from his physical body. He entered the disembodied state as a human being. It was called Hades by the Greeks. It's the state into which all enter at death. So Jesus died and experienced the state of Hades as our substitute under the power of death. And yet it was not a tragedy, nor was it a misfortune, but part of God's plan of salvation. And our Lord refers to that implicitly when he says, Behold, I am alive forevermore. Released from prison. And I want you to think with me how comforting that would have been for those who in the early church were being put to death. Those in the modern church who are being put to death. Jesus has already conquered death so that it can no longer hurt believers. At Pentecost, Peter said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. For David says concerning him, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So tonight we can give thanks for his sorrows and his virtues and his obedience and his shed blood. He took away the guilt of sin, he removed the sting of death, and he snatched victory from the grave. So it's no wonder that he tells us, fear not, fear not. He vanquished even the worst of enemies. And the same message was given to God's people under the covenant with Moses. We read it earlier, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the way it was under Moses, and it's no different under Christ. God is the same, and neither his character nor his promise has changed. So that promise in Isaiah 41.10 is also for you, and it's for me. Fear not. I'm with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I'll strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then notice what he goes on to say. To the Lord Jesus has been entrusted the keys of death and Hades. That's stunning. These churches were small. Persecution was increasing. The apostles were dead and John was exiled. Well, most of the apostles. The believers were being executed and the threat of death in the grave seemed to be swallowing up the church. But don't fear, because the risen Christ exercises sovereign control over death. He has the keys. And everybody in the ancient world knew what that meant. Like a scepter or a crown, the keys were important symbols of authority. They were only entrusted to the people who occupied high offices. So to have command of the keys was to possess authority and to exercise power. When Eliakim was to replace Shebna as the palace steward, God said this, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut. And he shall shut, none shall open. And that's the sense of those keys now firmly in the grip of the risen Christ. He has supreme control and unlimited authority over death and Hades. He possesses them. He rules them. And from his judgment, there is no appeal. 
He is in complete control of every transition from this world to the next. In short, the king of terrors is his slave. The grim reaper does his bidding, and the door of death cannot be opened unless Jesus turns the key. So what consolation must that have been for those who are facing such tribulations? The voice with a roar like many waters declares, I have the key of death. No one passes from this world to the next without my consent and control. No one's death is coincidental. No one's death is accidental, especially the death of one of my own. Through the psalmist, he said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So we will not die by chance. We will not die by accident. The time, the place, the circumstances are all divinely appointed. And that door cannot be unlocked until he is ready for you to pass through. At just the right moment, under just the right circumstances, He'll turn the key, and you will enter into glory. And you know something? Death has many doors, but every one of them is opened by just one key. There is the door of disease, sometimes sharp and rapid, other times chronic and gradual. There is the door of violence, whether it be the assassin's bullet or the predator's knife. There is a door of decay through which the human body passes by just wearing out and dropping down. But through whatever door one passes, the only key that opens it is held by Jesus. So we have no reason to be anxious about the circumstances of our death. So we're tempted to complain. We all know that. We're tempted with thoughts like these. Oh, Lord, not now. Not there. Not thus, Lord, not now. He's too important. She's too young. Grant him more time. Lord, not there, not away from home, not on the field of battle, not in a foreign land, Lord. Lord, not thus, not in misery, not by accident, not alone, not so sudden. And it's at that point that our Lord lays his right hand on our shoulder and he says to us, my dear child, my servant's work is done. She's just the right age. This is the perfect place. These circumstances are flawless. I have all things under my control and the one you love is within my sights and under my care and at my bidding. Nobody dies by chance. Every human being dies by divine appointment. Christ alone unlocks the passage from this world to the next because he has all authority. And in his majestic hands are laid those very keys of God's vast household. He rules over nature. He rules over providence. He rules over death and Hades. All things. Everything. Animate inanimate, visible, invisible, all of it's under his sovereign control because he reigns supreme. So let's carefully ponder this important truth. After all, we are Christians who belong to him. 
He's the Lord of all things, things temporal and eternal, and disembodied spirits are in conscious enjoyment or mindful misery depending on their relationship to him. Death does not destroy the soul. The soul is conscious when it departs this world. Space and time are in Christ's grasp. Life and death are under his control, and both the living and the dead will be judged by our exalted Savior. Now, this is very good news for the believer, but it's a terrifying declaration to the sinner. When the measure of his iniquity is full, he will pass through the door into perdition. The key will be turned, death's door will be opened, and all of his desires will perish. And once that door is shut behind him, no power in heaven or earth can open it again. Because it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. And so the hand which is no longer stretched out in mercy will cast the wicked into agony. Jude says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. But every time a Christian is welcomed into heaven, it is Christ who turns the key. And in the end, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. So we've seen the fear of the Lord, and we've considered the mercy of Christ, and now we conclude with the commission of John. He's told, write the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. On the basis of who Christ is and what he's done, John is recommissioned to write Earlier in verse 11, he was commissioned to write already, and now he's recommissioned. And many people understand this verse as the key to understanding Revelation. They think that God reveals some things concurrent with the days of John, those things that are. They think he reveals other things that would be in the future to John, those things that are to take place after this. And yet we can interpret this, not sequentially, but comprehensively. Get me on this. The things you have seen are not necessarily past time, but they're a totality. Everything you see in this entire vision. John is to write down everything, whether at the beginning or the end of the latter days, he must write it down. And whether they are present realities or final events, these things have been revealed. And it may be that the two following expressions are another example of a merism, two contrasting terms that refer to a totality. So we have the two contrasting terms, things that are and things that are to take place, referring to a totality. So he's not distinguishing, perhaps, between things that for him were in present time and referring to other things that are to come in the course of history. Rather, he's saying the book of Revelation has to do with any and every church in history. It's the whole thing. Based on the sight of the glorified Christ, John is to write down the meaning of history, all of it. And as the head and king of the church, the Lord Jesus reigns over that history. He is master of death and Lord of life, and so you and I have no reason to be afraid. The inspired apostle is recommissioned to give the infallible record of Christ's victory. And so this is an implicit exhortation to praise God for the testimony given by the apostle John. 
What he has written here in this book is a true account of things he both heard and saw. And Jesus Christ is in the midst of his people to bless with his presence and to save by his grace. And whatever you're going through, and it makes no difference what it is, he is with you to prepare you for an eternity in glory. It's the fulfillment of his promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for this remarkable vision of John, of the risen Christ. We recognize that because of who he is and what he has accomplished, that we as Christians have no need to fear, and yet we are tempted to do so. We're weak by nature, and therefore we need the help of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that this first chapter, this amazing vision of Christ Jesus would help all of us here to be strengthened in the inner man and to be able to follow Christ with joy and thanksgiving. For we do pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.